Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, our children are free to go with Miss Sarah. She's waving in the back by the back door. This is not something that is required. It is not something that's like an absolute. But if you so choose for your children to leave, we will talk about some things that might be a little disturbing or that you might be very uncomfortable not having the first opportunity to talk to them about. So in a way to honor you as parents. Uh, so Sarah and your team, we're grateful for you guys that y'all do this for our precious kiddos, and we, we love that. I want to say at the, uh, the onset of this message that I'm going to be talking and may mention some things uh, that could be a trigger for you. We will mention words like abortion. We will mention uh, some other phrases and some things today. And, and I want you to know that there's a, a lot of things that could happen when we start talking about those kinds of issues. First and foremost, I want you to hear my heart. If you've ever thought about an abortion or had an abortion, can I tell you that this is not a place of judgment. This is a place of grace. And how I pray today that you would be loved and that you would hear your Father not condemning you or me or anyone in this church, but that you would hear that you are actually person that can be greatly forgiven and loved, that you are not what you have done. And so I want you to know that I tread lightly for that. And then I also know that some may struggle with infertility. And so subjects when we talk about life and kids, this really is very difficult for you because you hear of those who may take life, but yet you're saying, man, I would want it and I can't have it. And I want you to know that my heart deeply goes out to you, and I understand that this could be a very tender place for you, and I want to tread lightly there. I also want you to know that this could even trigger when we say things like that you're valued and that you're wanted, like me, if you were adopted and come to find out that you weren't really wanted, uh, this could also trigger you. I want you to know that I've thought through and prayed for you if you have lost a child at any point along the journey, that today's message might be very difficult for you to hear as well. And so I have prayed and thought through a lot of things pertaining to this. And so I will try to be sensitive as I'm being faithful to God's Word. We're here in this series that we've been calling Biblical Wisdom for Cultural Concerns. We've covered a lot of subjects, and we're going to cover a very, very important subject today. I want you to know that ideas have consequences. In the 1920s in Germany, two professors, one was a jurist and the other was a psychiatrist, they wrote a 132-page book that introduced the idea that should pop up on the screen behind me. Leben sind wertes Leben. They introduced this idea that basically means this, life unworthy 
of life. They said that some people had life but were unworthy of having life. People who were brain damaged, mentally ill, or those who were mentally deficient, these kind of people were called mentally dead and they were called a financial as well as a moral burden. Their conclusion was that people like this are disposable. They are unworthy of life. Again, ideas have consequences. So this book was written in 1920, and then in 1933, Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of the Third Reich. The sickening idea of being, having life but being unworthy of life now became his policy. Please understand, what I'm about to tell you is absolutely atrocious. It's very hard to hear, but it needs to be heard. You see, the killing started quietly. And it started with children. It started with one child. The child was born blind, and it had only one leg, and the child had part of one of its arms missing, and it had some mental developmental issues. The baby's doctor, under order from Hitler's personal physician, killed that baby. From that, the baby killing expanded. Centers were established and referred to as children's specialty institutions. Sometimes they were called therapeutic convalescent institutions. Still true that we can put nice sounding names on very terrible places. The doctors and administrators proceeded as if children who came to these institutions were there to receive medical care. In reality, these developmentally and mentally challenged children, including many who today would be diagnosed with autism, they were brought to these places to be killed. The doctors would meet with the parents and say things like, well, the ordinary therapy that we used to do that used to help your child would no longer help your child, your child is going to require extraordinary measures. So children were brought in and kept for a few weeks to make it look like they were going, undergoing some kind of therapy. Frequently, the order to kill the child was delivered by innuendo rather than a specific command because even we don't use those words when doing terrible things. The killing was done with tablets of luminol, which is a barbiturate. Luminol was given to the child repeatedly over a few days until the child lapsed into an endless sleep and then died. An ordinary disease such as pneumonia would be listed as the cause of death. The families would receive a letter of condolence signed with the name of a fictitious doctor. The criteria for killing these so-called defective children then began to expand. And now children were brought in that had even minor handicaps. It culminated into killing children who were even considered juvenile delinquents. Eventually, the killing went from, children's, it went from children to adults and over 6 million European Jews were extinguished. All because of one phrase. Life unworthy of life. You see, ideas have consequences. If we believe that human life is the result of a biological accident, 
resulting from the process of natural selection and evolution, then what I've just described to you can be justified and even accepted. But if we believe that life is a gift of God, that human life is a special creation of God, then it changes everything about not only how we view life, but how we view death. So what does God teach about the sanctity of life? So I want you to take out your Bibles, and I want you to turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's a Bible there in the seat pockets. Hopefully, underneath those chairs, you'll be able to find one. I want you to stand with me as we read a few verses from Psalm 139. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1 and then skipping to verse 13. The Bible says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious! Also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. God, may you bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. David says in verse 1, God, you know me. You know who I am. Then in the verses that follow, he states that God knows his thoughts, his words, his actions, his whereabouts. And that no matter where he goes, he cannot escape the loving presence of God. He says this is too wonderful for him to even take in. And then he begins something incredible in verses 13 through 17. See, God has endowed human life with sanctity and sacredness. From the beginning of life to the very end, life is sacred. And our text this morning is going to give us five reasons why life is sacred. Here's the first one. Human life uniquely carries the image of God. Human life uniquely carries the image of God. Look there in verse 13. David says this. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. To be formed in the inward parts literally means in the Hebrew, you have formed my kidneys. This is a Hebrew way of referring to the inner nature of a person. It was the innermost part of who someone is. In other words, God has not only formed us physically, but also internally with a soul and with a mind. He has created us every single part of us. The text says that you wove me means to interweave or to knit together. Just as one skillfully, carefully, and thoughtfully weaves a cloth or a basket, God has woven and put us together. 
Beloved, can I remind you that you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are not a burden. God made you, designed you, knit your nervous system together. God put your personality together. God weaved your muscles, your eye color, your earlobes, those funny looking little toes. Everything about you, God skillfully put together. And God especially made you and breathed life into you. But there's more. You and I and every living person that's ever been conceived on the planet Earth has been made in the image of God. We are not some haphazard collision of sperm and egg. We are not some haphazard collision of chromosomes. This is a picture here of God weaving bones, tissues, organs, everything about us under the intensive skill of His hands. We have been created that way in His image. In Genesis 1.27, the Bible says this, So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this is the culmination of God creating everything that we see and know. And after everything that God has created and seen, he doesn't say about the animals or about the mountains or about the fish that they've been created in his image. He uniquely reserves that for humans. So then what separates us from the animal world? I mean, biologically, we're similar. Neurologically, we're much like that of a dog or a cat. Cardiologically, we're like that of a gorilla. Gastrointestinally, we're like that of a fox or a raccoon. But what makes us different? You and I and all humans have been made uniquely in the image of God. Image means something that is similar to the thing it represents. What does this mean? Well, the image of God means a lot. I could preach a series of sermons on that. But today, for the sake of time, I will give you at its most fundamental level what being created in the image of God means. And please remember this because it will come back. Being created in the image of God fundamentally, foundationally means that you and I can have a relationship with God and He can have one with us. That's fundamentally what's at the very core of why we're different from the animal kingdom. You and I, beloved, no matter our age, no matter our health, whether we're in a womb or out of it, whether we're mentally stable or physically able, Every single one of us has been made in the image of God and therefore life is sacred because it bears the image of God. The second thing, human life is created with dignity and worth. Human life is created with dignity and worth because you have been created by God in his image. Not only you, but every life has dignity and inestimable worth. Verse 14, he says, I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully 
and wonderfully made. The word fearful here is the word we use to describe things that should be held in awe and revered deeply. So can I tell you this? There's no pregnancy that's ever taken place that was a mistake. There's no baby that's ever been a mistake. Some will struggle with this and some may ask, why are some born with mental and physical deformities that prevent them from living a full life? The problem is is that our society views life as as having the opportunity to obtain, obtain status or to produce something. The Bible views life as the ability to fellowship with God and Him to have fellowship with you. So therefore, when we take a biblical worldview, we know then that we have been fearfully made even if our bodies don't represent what it may look like to society to be fearfully or wonderfully made. Because every life is wonderfully and fearfully made, no matter what a person looks like or no matter what their mind can can act like, every single person has incredible worth to God because He is the one that made it and created it. And God is perfect and makes no mistakes. There's a preacher and his wife, and they're very, very poor. They already have 14 children. And now she finds out that she's pregnant with the 15th and they can barely put food on the table. They live in extreme poverty. The family says, maybe you should abort this child. Well, if you do, you've just aborted John Wesley, one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known. A couple consists of a father who is sick with a bad cold and a mother with tuberculosis. They have four children. The first child is blind. The second one died. The third one is deaf. And the fourth one has tuberculosis. She finds out that she's pregnant again. Should she abort this baby? If so, we've just aborted Beethoven. A white man raped a 13-year-old black girl and she became pregnant. If you were her parents, would you say, we need to abort this? If you do, you've just aborted Ethel Water. She was a great gospel singer who traveled with Billy Graham and helped bring many people to Jesus Christ. A teenage girl is pregnant and she's not married. Her boyfriend is not the father of the baby. She's already been looked down upon and rumors about her are spreading like wildfire. Would you recommend an abortion? If so, you've just killed the Lord Jesus. You see, the number one reason for abortion is inconvenience. God says life is not an inconvenience. God says life is incomparable. Beloved, there are no mistakes from God. Every life matters. Every life has dignity and value. And please listen to me. I know that some, maybe with an about you may have had an abortion. I am not here to judge you. I'm here just to tell others, please know life has value. I know you probably regret that. I want you to know there's lots of grace for you. But Psalm 8, 4 and 5 says these words. Psalm 8 says this. What is mankind that you're mindful of the human beings 
that you care for. Watch this. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Humans are crowned with glory and honor. That word glory is a Hebrew word that means heaviness. It's the word we use to say holy. It's, it means that it has significance. Life is filled with weightiness, with significance, and with worth. But can I tell you, apart from the Bible, you cannot even understand that. An MIT professor, Rodney Brooks, wrote in his book, Flesh and Machines, that human beings are nothing more than a machine. A big bag of skin full of biomolecules interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. He even says this about his own children. He says in the book that his own children are simply just machines. That view of life makes life very meaningless and expendable. But the Bible says life is meaningful and has dignity and worth. Every life counts. Human life is sacred because it carries the image of God. It's, it's sacred because it's been created by God with dignity and worth. But where does life start? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, if it's created in God's image and it's given worth, where does it start? Well, we have to look in the text to find out. But here's where we believe. Here's what we believe. Human life is conceived in the womb before birth. Human life is conceived in the womb before verse. In verse 15, David says these words. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. When David says my frame, he's referring to the bones of the skeleton. When he says the depths of the earth, that's a Hebrew euphemism referring to the womb. You were skillfully put together, woven together, bone upon bone, part by part in the womb. You were not hidden or unknown by God. He is the one who breathed life into you. But where did this happen? In the depths of the earth. Again, this is the way of saying in the womb. But where? In the womb, but when? The Bible says there in verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were written the days that were ordained as yet none of them had been. In other words, what the Bible says is, is that you were being put together as a human being at conception before even a single day outside of the womb had started. Human life is created by God in the womb at conception. God says that even when we were unborn, He knows us and has a plan for us. I could show you this all throughout Scripture, but for the sake of time, I'm only going to go a couple of places. When referring to the twins inside Rebekah's womb, the Bible says this in Genesis 25. But the children, that they struggled together within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now this is interesting. Before the babies were even born, she calls them babies. This is incredible because the Bible does never, never does the Bible see a difference between what's inside the womb and a newborn outside the womb. It's the same word. 
Life starts at conception, and a baby in the womb is called a baby. It doesn't have to be born before it's called a baby. It's worthy. It's worthy of living. And when talking about these babies in another place, Hosea 12.3 says this, In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel as a man he struggled with God. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. This is language that refers to an actual person. This is not some grouping of cells, not a blob of tissue. It's a person deserving the right to live. God says that he knows us and has a plan for us even before we were born. While we were yet in the womb, Jeremiah 1.5 says this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you as a reference to, to a potter taking clay and making it into a piece of pottery for, for a great purpose. Beloved, before you were even born, God knew you and formed you. And, and listen to me, God knew the plans that he had for your life before you were ever even born. Isaiah 49.1 says this, listen to me, you islands, and pay attention to you people, distant nation. The Bible says, before I was born, the Lord called me. And from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Isaiah says that before he was born, he had an identity and a purpose. And that tells me that life was created in the womb before birth. In Luke 1, 41 through 44, you know this story. But when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to that. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how is it that it's happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. What's important for you to know in this is that the word for baby is the same word that's in the womb that's out of the womb. It describes a newborn in the womb or a newborn out of the womb. There's no distinction when it comes to if it's life inside the womb or out of the womb. Life starts at conception in the womb. And notice something amazing, that this unborn baby was able to hear and to respond. This unborn baby experienced the emotion of joy. This isn't Elizabeth's opinion. This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon her. This is what God views. You see, listen very carefully. A baby in the womb is not a massive tissue. A baby in the womb is not a potential person. A baby in the womb is not a part of a mother's body to do with how she chooses. It is an individual human being made in God's image with value and worth. Think about it. Outside of the womb, we work very hard to protect babies. Matter of fact, you can't even leave the hospital without a proper baby seat. We childproof our homes with safety latches. We do all kinds of things in our homes to protect our children and our babies. But listen carefully. Can I tell you this today? That our nation, our nation has made the inside of a womb the most dangerous place a child could ever be.
From the current stats that I have, there have been over 61 million abortions since 1973. You know what that means? That means 2,362 abortions happen every single day in America. That's 98 babies that have been aborted since you got here this morning. And that would be one every 37 seconds. But see, it gets worse. Because that only includes surgical and medical abortions. That doesn't happen with abortions that are a result. The things that we use to abort the baby in other ways. Sometimes we take pills that do it. The truth is, guys, that there are over 14 million chemical abortions that take place here in America. Now, can I remind you that abortion is not the unpardonable sin? I'll let you know that there's incredible grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and hope with Jesus. Can I also share something with you, church? There has never been and never ever will be the sin of pregnancy. There may be sins that led to pregnancy, but pregnancy is never a sin. And when you and I see some young couple or maybe some girl or maybe something that's happened and we look and we make them feel that they're sinning because they're carrying a baby, we have to be careful we don't send the wrong message. Life matters. And the church ought to be the first people there to help. We must treat those who become pregnant, no matter the reason, with grace. And there may be sins that have caused pregnancy, and that can be forgiven. But we must make sure that we never communicate that anybody feels that their pregnancy, that baby, is a sin. It carries the image of God. It's been created with dignity and value. It's been conceived in the womb before birth. And then, fourthly, human life is unequivocally controlled by the Lord. When we understand this, it affects every part of life and death. In verse 16, David says, All the days ordained for me were written down in your book before one of them ever came to be. Life is like a book that's already been written, and God knows how the plot of our life will be worked out. He knew that David would go from a shepherd boy to be a special king. God knew everything about David's life, and he knew how David would die at the age of 70. From beginning to end, God knows. It's all written down in his book. God is the only one that controls life and death. I need you to know that it's very possible today that maybe you've had one of these conversations about the end of life. Medical advances can keep somebody along for a very long time, and A lot of us sometimes struggle with how long we should continue a person on medical devices. Beloved, can I tell you, there are no easy answers. 
My counsel is always to pray for God's guidance, to get wise counsel from others, to then to make a choice and then just trust the Lord, trusting that God even knows when the end should come. The Bible tells us that Job watched all of his children die in one day. But then in Job 1.21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Job realized that God and God alone gives life, and God and God alone is the only one that can take life. Deuteronomy 32.39 says this, See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. Life and death belong to God. That being the case, life matters. Life is sacred because we carry the image of God, been created with dignity and worth, have been conceived in the womb before birth, and life is controlled by God. But then lastly, human life is capable of fulfilling its purpose even in suffering. Human life is capable of fulfilling its purpose even in suffering. God has good purposes even in human suffering. Verse 17, he says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. That word thoughts means knowledge. David says, God, you know, you know my purpose. You have plans for me. What you know about me and how you're working it in and through me to fulfill your plans and your purpose, it's all too wonderful for me. Can I tell you this, that God has a purpose in everything. God had a purpose for that unplanned pregnancy. Do you know that? Do you know that God has a purpose when a child is born with a handicap? Do you know that? Do you know that when somebody faces a tragic disease, like we've been praying for Sarah's dad, did you know that God had a a plan and a purpose in that? God says He's written it all down before it even came to be, that His thoughts toward us are precious. Again, even after facing the loss of all of His children and experiencing terrible physical pain, Job says in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Paul faced all kinds of suffering and pain and at times was even ready to die. Yet he says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It's not that all things are good. There are some very tragic things that happen, but it's God's purpose that's good. Human life is capable of fulfilling its purpose that God intends for each person. That purpose may not be to never have physical deformities. That purpose may not be that you live a life that's without suffering. God's purpose may not be for you to be famous or to live a very long life. His purpose may not be that you have all of your senses, that you have all of your body parts. That that may not be God's purpose. But remember, because you have been created in the image of God, that is your purpose, to know God and to enjoy Him forever. Sin has affected this world. Sin has deeply affected our bodies and our choices and our decisions. 
Did you know that even in that, Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You guys can come. Remember reading a story, maybe you're familiar with it, about a young man that was walking along the seashore. Up ahead of him on the seashore was a, a person, it was a man, it was kind of distant, and he saw him walking, and every few steps, the man ahead of him would stoop down and seem to be throwing something into the sea. His curiosity aroused, and so this young man began to hurry his way toward this other man to catch up with him, and as he became closer in view, he saw that it was a very old man. And the reason this man was stopping every step or two and bending over was to pick up a starfish and to fling it into the ocean. Then the young man looked around and noticed that there were thousands upon thousands of starfish upon the shore. The old man seemed to be doing was really pointless. And so he tried to get close to him to, to tell him so. And he, as he got closer, he just said, hey, hey, why are you doing this? I mean, you can't save all these starfish. It's useless. What are you even doing? The old man bent over, picked up another one, and looked at the young man and said, it matters to this one. And threw it back into the ocean. And I tell you, we may not be able to save every single human life. The numbers are staggering. But the ones that we do save, can I tell you, it matters to that one. It matters to that one. So as I close this message, I want to give you just a couple of practical ways to do the book. Can I just ask you to teach your children the value and worth of their life and of every life? Can you remind your children that God loves them and he loves every single person and he has a plan for their life and for their friend's life? Number two, pray for and get involved with a pro-life ministry. Can I tell you what the church really struggles with? The church have a whole lot of people amen in sermons like this. But when the pastor says we need to adopt some kids, that amen turns into an oh me. We're pro-life unless it means adopting children. We're pro-life unless it means getting involved in foster care. Can I tell you this? We're pro-life unless it means going to the nursing home. I'm just telling you, man, you, we have to get involved, church. We just can't say life matters and then do nothing about it. We have to get involved with rescuing children. And I'm begging you, I'm begging you, please go home and look up Texas foster care and adoption agencies and see how you can get involved. Support a pregnancy care center. Find one around that you can give your time and money to. Please, please do that. Can you also remember to provide encouragement for caregivers? Do you know that there are people that, that, are, that are in our church even that have special needs children and they need a lot of encouragement? One of the ways you can be pro-life is support people who the world says they should have gotten rid of those. And we're saying no. 
We need to come alongside those. Can we go and minister to people in nursing homes or people that are homebound because the end of life matters just as much as the beginning of life does? Volunteer at a hospice. And then lastly, not to be political, but to be political. I'm sure it'll be taken that way, but it's not. Make sure when you vote, you vote for somebody that stands for life. Because that way you'll be voting the book and not a party. Can't ever go wrong voting the book. I wonder if you'd stand with me today. I want you to know that my wife and I, and I'm sure Justin and Brandon and some others would be more than happy, but I can't speak for Justin and Brandon, but I know this would be their heart, but I can't speak for Rachel and I. If you've ever had an abortion or anything of that nature and you need to talk to somebody, I want you to know that my wife and I are here and we will love you and just shepherd you the best we can. But I want to right now, man, if we're talking about life and life matters so much, I wonder if you would think about it like this with me. Your life matters so much to God that he doesn't want you to die and be separated from him. God wants you to know that he created you to be with him. That was his purpose, to know him and to enjoy him. But sin entered the world. Because you and I are sinners, we've all done things that displease God. And because of that, we are separated from God because he's holy and he can't allow us into his presence. But God said that you are so valuable to him that he would send his only son to die for you and in your place. And that if you would believe that God put him on a cross and that he was buried and raised again, that if you would believe in that and turn from your sin and trust that he died for you, God said he would come into you and make you alive again and forgive you forever and you could have a home with him in heaven forever. That's how precious life is to God. That he would die so that we don't have to. I'm going to pray and if you need that, if you've never experienced that and you want that, forgiveness and hope and a new life, you come grab us by the hand. We'll pray with you. Others, maybe you need to, to pray. I don't know really what God wants to do with this, but I'm going to pray and we'll sing. Holy Spirit, have your way. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.